You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 623, Sir Alex versus Bex, the Netflix documentary, bands that don't want to play the hits, how Red Wedge found out that music doesn't win elections, and the retirement of Nicholas Witchell. That's all coming up after Was Not Was and Spy in the House of Love. Try to get my mission 
I adore music that has the full kitchen sink treatment in the production, and that has the kitchen sink, the toaster, the kettle, everything you can think of thrown in there. Fantastic mm. production. Six singles taken from this album, all of them hits from 1988, and the album What Up Dog Was Not Was <laughs> and Spy in the House of Love. They were fun, weren't they? Was Not Was. They haven't necessarily. Um, they're not revered, are they no, nowadays? No. Which is a pretty, which is a pity, really. But as you say, some great songs on that. Um, Walk the Dinosaur being my famous, mm. my favourite from that album. I think that is absolutely brilliant. But yeah, I think it's a, it's a lot of fun. And they all had, um, they had lots of sort of, um, their B sides were quite prominent as well. They all had very interesting names. The B sides were called from that album were called, um, Earth to Doris, um, <laughs> Dad I'm in Jail, Eleven Miles an Hour, Abe zap ruder version in brackets afterwards um what up dog and um the death of mr ping pong which was the b-side to anything can happen i had no idea what a band full of ideas welcome to the parish council uh uh, this audio presentation it's episode 623 i'm terence stackham and well there's been so much media speculation Mm. let's find out if it's true is she going in the Big Brother house? Let's ask <laughs> Juliet Harris. Well, I mean, where Ryland, my my personal showbiz pal, leads, mm. I surely must follow. However, Think. disappointingly, I've not had the call. Although uh. maybe I'll be introduced later on. I want to do a Jack D and sort of turn, uh, sort of to either try and escape on the roof or I don't think you remember. He was on the first Celebrity Big Brother. I believe he won the first Celebrity Big Brother. Right. He was very entertaining. Um, he behaved in typically sort of wry fashion every every evening when they had an eviction. He would dress in a Mac and a beret with a fully packed suitcase ready to leave. And then much to his disappointment was not evicted. I think in the end, people were sort of won just to keep him in there, I think, because it was so funny how much he wanted to leave. But um, yeah, I, unfortunately, I will not get to wear my beret on Big Brother, I assume. Um it, it all seems That's to be shame. very shrieky to me. It, I find it so strange that when I was reading, there was a really good piece in The Guardian a couple of weeks ago about the first ever Big Brother and how different mm. it was. Mm. And that was a very sedate affair, that first series, wasn't it? The, it, the, was. The most it was a genuine pro- social experiment. It was. And the, and the most awful thing that happened was that man writing things on a piece of paper. Nasty Nick. Yes, yes. Craig, who thought he was out of order and was correct to do so, and won as a result. That really was like 12 Angry Men, except that Henry Fonda was played by a, a, a Scouse builder, wasn't he? That was a genuinely <laughs> excellent. Um, just a really good really good sort of idea and unfortunately became more and more sensationalized over time and and i i fear that we've started from that base already again from there i saw about five minutes of very loud people going in and i just thought i don't this is a long way from darren and his hens isn't it really this is not this is not for me so i will not be living there i'm afraid oh it's a disappointment but do you know what though it's funny you say that i thought um, I'm not going to watch it, so I thought I'll record mm. it. And um, yeah, will it bring back the spirit of the first yes. few series? Which the and first four series were excellent, superb. I think. Mm. But I watched just like you. I watched the first two people go in, and I just thought I can't. I just can't watch. No, this. Just, these aren't my people. No, absolutely. Everybody, sh- well, everybody, both of them, shrieking and yelling and running around, going oh, and you just know, you just know, after a week, mm. they'll all be at each other's throats, and yeah, exactly. You know, all, so we're all going to be friends, and what a great time we're going to have, and no, it ain't going to happen. 
I don't think it will. Although we might not end up with Fight Night again, which really no. was one of the most startling things yeah. that's ever happened on live TV. But anyway. Actually, talking about Jack D going, you know, mm. so Berry and everything. Do you remember that woman, I think her name was Grace, who chucked a glass of um, drink in the face of somebody when she was um, evicted? Yes. That was very peculiar, wasn't it? Not, not, <laughs> not for, none of these pindies, just happy times, <laughs> except for the person whose face it was. Yes. Um, a bit like we always wonder if there's anything new to find out about the Beatles, and then we find hmm. out there's a new mine of information to do to be devoured. So, so I wondered about David Beckham. I mean, don't we know it all? And I mean, maybe we do, but the new documentary in four episodes on Netflix mm. gives perspectives on his life a career character that we've never seen before and this mm. is because they have access to everybody mm. seriously everyone whether this is due to gary neville being executive producer yes. or they're paying exceptional appearance fees i don't know but they're all there from sir alex to Cantona, roy Keane, peter hook uh, mm. melanie chisholm and diego simeone and from the moment i saw the title of episode one jules it's called the kick i knew that all roads would lead to 1998 and diego simeone indeed and you were absolutely as always city were absolutely <laughs> correct and spot on so i couldn't resist watching this um because i I've always really, really liked David Beckham. And no matter how ridiculous the circle around him got, he's always been an amazing footballer. And actually, I think a reasonably nice person. And even when embarrassingly, embarrassing emails have leaked purportedly being from him, he's always made me laugh. I will have to say, you know, this is just David Beckham expressing this opinion at this point. There is no, you know, factual basis or otherwise for this. But there was, you know, do you remember there was that he was was allegedly campaigning for him to get a knighthood? Knighthood, yeah. Were. And he was complaining that Dame Catherine Jenkins was so, and as he put it, all she ever does is coke and singing at the rugby. And I have to say, it did make me happy that David Beckham is as unpleasant as the rest, as bitchy yes. as the rest of us. Anyway, I enjoyed this documentary because, like you say, they had extraordinarily extraordinary access, and there have been occasional things that purport to be fly on the wall or behind the scenes with the Beckhams before. But I actually felt that. Uh, he, and both both he and Victoria Beckham were pretty frank in this, actually. I, I thought he was very candid um, in sort of and I found it a really interesting insight into in sort of because, uh, of course, the first one is to some extent setting the scene as well, isn't it? As you say, yeah. roads did lead to the kick and Diego. But um, before that, like you say, it was interesting to hear from his parents, both of whom seem to be exceptional people. And um, Matthew Said wrote in The Times fairly recently, I think, that he had ghostwritten David um, David Beckham's autobiography or book from a few years ago and that he had spent a lot of time with the parents as a result and actually he had enormous amounts of admiration and respect yeah. for both of them and they both came across really well in this I think. They, they have divorced but they, they are still sort of very much a unit in terms of being David Beckham's parents and I thought everyone was really interesting. Characteristically hysteria, hysterical cameo from Roy Keane when they were talking <laughs> about um, 
about David Beckham sort of spending all his money on cars and clothes and things early on. And he bought a really expensive pen. And Roy Keane goes, who buys a pen? I can't quite say what he said because we have a, a non-explicit yeah. rating. But yes, who buys an insert expletive here, here pen, which I thought was quite entertaining. <laughs> um, Gary Neville, really good value as David Beckham's kind of right-hand man who was, I thought, very clear-headed. Actually, I thought all the contributors to this were pretty clear-headed, actually. I thought it was really interesting that they had Ferguson talking. There seemed to be a bit of a long-running theme of father figures, not David Beckham's father, but his Mm. father figures letting him down, so Hoddle having let him down so badly. And what was so interesting about this, I think, aside from the sort of... I enjoyed the insight into how David and Victoria Beckham met and how they were both very similar people, and that they were actually quite unpopular people at school. They didn't have many friends, and I thought that was quite touching in a way. They sort of found a similar thing in each other, which I thought was lovely. And I love the fact... I mean, I'm just an old softy at heart, Terence, and I love the fact that they just they just talk to each other all the time on the phone. Gary yeah. Neville was like, "Why are you talking to each other at three a.m.? What are you talking about?" And just how everybody else was just so yeah. bewildered by this. But what was so interesting and what gave it genuine insight, I think, like you say, the fact it was called the kick was it really did, and I know, again, I always say the same thing. Whenever we talk about any official biography, you always go, well, okay, this is the official version, isn't it? Mm. So you get the narrative they want to tell you. But actually, I thought it was quite compelling. when Because I'd forgotten all the hoo-ha about him not being picked for the early games by Glenn Hoddle. Mm. I'd forgotten all that. I, you know, I lived through it. I watched all the matches, but I'd kind of forgotten that that had happened. And I thought it was really compelling, actually, the way that it kind of set this narrative of David Beckham being so, so wound up and so wanting something to prove and not having seen Victoria Beckham beforehand. And, you know, all this kind of, the sort of the pressure that was on him, actually, this mm. kind of, you know, this incredible kind of and that he dealt with it quite well up until then I think that was seemed to be the sort of the I loved the way they cut the footage of Manchester United Liverpool where you know they talked about him you know see driving along to see Victoria Beckham for half an hour in London and then driving back again and being tired and then all of a sudden he manages to wake up and come mm. through I know it's all edited and I know it's yeah. I thought it was very skillfully done. That but was, I just yeah. I just thought it was so telling that, you know, it was really interesting how you got this insight where, yeah, no, in a way you were like, well, no wonder it all went wrong. It, it, it made it feel inevitable, the kick, didn't it, really, once you saw yes. the sort of pressure. And also how telling that Diogo Zimoni didn't think he deserved turning off. It's all very well to say that <laughs> now. Diogo, yeah. Mm. No, I liked this. I thought it was very slickly done, but not in a way that was irritating or without depth, I didn't think. I think it's a fabulous documentary. I, I was gripped right from the well, the unexpected opening shots of David Beckham in a yes. monogram beekeeper's outfit. <laughs> and they wouldn't agree, bee- and they couldn't agree what the honey should be called. David absolutely. Beckham is right; it should be called golden bees. It absolutely should be called that. Um, yeah, uh, well, yes. It, I mean, the overall picture over this hour of episode one. I've only watched episode one so far. No, so. same. But I will probably watch the rest. Oh, of I think I, I really will, yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I, I found the transformation of both Victoria, but especially David, from yes. tongue-tied youngster with uncertain yes. winning into the, the very articulate and very likable mm. people they are today. Um, but they seem yeah. really nice people, actually. I think. I think they. they they're yeah. shrewd. Although I must take issue with David Beckham saying he's thoroughly struggled at school. He wasn't intelligent. I will say this until I'm blue in the face. Being academically disclined is not the same as not being intelligent. And I hope that someone will tell David Beckham that because him and Victoria Beckham are clearly very shrewd people to have got to the positions they have and to have stayed there. 
oh, I've argued this for so many years. Yes, it, exactly. Academically, um, so many examinations, O-levels and A-levels, are a test of memory rather yes. than uh, a test of intelligence. There's, there's a huge or, 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 gulf a, between the two. Yeah, a test of, of reproducing information yeah. that you've learned under time conditions. It's Absolutely, not the same yeah. thing as being able to live your life. There were, there were some interesting divergences of opinion. David Beckham on his fame, he said, it didn't change me. Sir Alex mm. on David's fame, well, he changed. Um, mm. Trying to keep his feet on the ground was difficult. Um, mind you, um, it, it wasn't as difficult as Sir Alex keeping his temper when Beck's chosen agent that wasn't the choice yes. of Sir Alex. Yes, that but was very telling, say, I, The it? bit that really came out to me, and you've highlighted this, mm. the person who really does not come out of this documentary so far at all well is Glenn Hoddle. Great yes, player, indeed. respected coach, terrible man manager and yes, desperately awful. inarticulate as well as he is to this day and Absolutely. the comments, comments he made in the immediate aftermath of Beckham being sent off in that stormy match against Argentina yes. absolutely threw um, Becks to the wolves yes yeah, not uh, at all uh, helpful or compassionate uh, when all. I think about the way that Serena Weigman commented on Lauren mm. James uh, um, what a contract it's a, it's a what a, you know what a class act and what a golf eh Yes. I mean, it was monstrously unfair. I mean, it was unprofessional. And um, also, I, I felt that, uh, and remembering at the time, it was probably all that stuff was um, to divert attention away and save Hoddle's own skin. But Yes, overall, from the faith healer stuff, which got oh, him in the end, didn't it? Faith, it certainly did. And, and I never said them things when he was saying about... Uh, uh, well, I don't want to repeat it, but about people yes. with disabilities, but I don't want to. Oh, horrendous, said, horrendous. Yeah. Yes. No, it was an absolutely absorbing first episode, presented like an episode of Succession, I felt. And uh, yes. yeah, really, really gripping, Jules, really gripping. I love this. I thought it was brilliant. I genuinely did. The, like you say, very gripping, really sort of interesting. Everyone who contributed was interesting. Also, I, I love the fact as well that um, that we saw Paul Ince um, by a snooker table. <laughs> and he really did look like the old school footballer that he was. And when he was talking about um, Sir Alex Ferguson wanting all of their players to be similar and how, you know, you got asked when you joined, did you have a girlfriend? How long had you been together? When were you getting married? All that yeah. sort of thing. And I love the fact that, you know, Paul Ince was there just looking like the old school football that used to play at Manchester United you know none of the none of the sort of haircut things and actually I suppose in a way Beckham was the first footballing superstar wasn't he as he put it himself he was one of the first people to work with the brands as he put it which is you know was what it was and I love the fact as well that he was not allowed to have anything other than black football boots he tried to bring in white adidas football boots and and Ferguson would not having said that though I'm also a fan of the black football boots Mm. I you know I do I do miss the days of black boots it used to be that if you wore coloured boots it was so players could pick you out so you'd look unusual wouldn't you if you're wearing green boots or whatever whereas now if you wore black boots that stands you out doesn't (laughs) it it? because everybody else is a pink and orange and green and, and whatever now, I can't believe anybody has missed all the advertising for this, but just in case you have this documentary, yes. Beckham, all four episodes are streaming on Netflix. Mm. Coming next, bands that don't play the hits, and Stevie Nicks says Fleetwood Mac, I'm going to play it all. Mm. That's right after Sudan Archives.
really like this i really like this outfit um i i don't know massive amounts about them but i always seems to hear them on six music and i always enjoy them um i believe that she's britain Brittany denise parks but she's also sudan archives and she's uh, a sort of one woman outfit violinist singer and songwriter based in los angeles california but i just love her sound i think it's so interesting and so sort of um so um so kind of just just a, like a sound that you don't hear anyone else mm. i think really i really like it like it and i feel that song lives up to its name that it is called glorious and it is seti yeah it's really new to me but a real cracker and as you said mm. great mix of sounds very very good indeed good discovery um i remember and going to see Neil Young when he came over here to play some dates back in the 1970s. Mm. And he, he must have been in a peculiar mood because he played this sort of bizarre trick on the audience. Um, you know how um, it's become a bit of a thing that if an artist doesn't actually announce the next song, the audience tend to applaud or cheer, saying, oh, I recognise the intro. You know, letting yes. everyone around them know that they are a true fan. They know all the songs. Well, mm. Neil Young did this. He played about six songs without speaking and then said... Well, I don't know why you're clapping the opening bars of all these songs. I've played all the same chords for all of them and they don't belong to any of my songs. So um, he was like, oh, gosh, tricking the audience. Some people laughed, I remember, but I thought, well, I'm a bit of an idiot to alienate. And I, 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 yes, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm pro Neil, but not pro mm. that. Um, but um, in the set, Neil Young largely stuck to the hits from his emerging mm. career from needle and the damage done to heart of gold this is in contrast to an ever-growing trend in music where bands don't play their hits including the band the national who mm. played two nights at alexandra park last week and played two completely different sets on mm. each night they played the hits on tuesday but played a load of um album tracks on the wednesday we don't mm. want that jules don't want that just play the hits I mean, I think my view on this is 
if you are going to do that, can you tell people in advance when you put the tickets on sale what you're doing? Because then people can make a choice, can't they? If they want to see all the rare stuff, they could buy the Wednesday tickets. If they want to see the hits, they could buy the Tuesday tickets. I think that usually I would expect to see a band do a mix of both. I thought that PJ Harvey got it right when we saw her the other week and that she was touring a new album. And you would not unexpectedly... You know, it's not unfair to expect an artist that is promoting a new album to want no, to play a lot so. of songs yeah. from their new album. OK, fine. So what she did was she did a show of two halves. The first half, she did the new album album from start to finish in its entirety, which we all enjoyed very much. She uh, she didn't have a support band, by the way. So she played for an hour and right. three quarters, which was pretty good, I thought. She played from eight. She started, came on pretty much at eight. Doors opened at half six. We queued for a very long time in Camden. But anyway, it was nice to see Camden, I suppose, although we didn't see much of it. But um, um, she she did that. And then she went off for about five minutes whilst the rest of her band played a song, one of hers, which John Paris sings lead on. And then she came back on and they did another, I would say, a good hour of um of a mix of sort of you know popular singles that she'd done and also a couple of a few sort of album tracks as well and i thought that was the perfect mix of promoting your new album but also really it was a real dip through her back catalogue as well i thought and it was and it really did it was a sort of a way of pleasing everybody i think she did do some of the big hits she did do um she did dress she did uh, to bring you my love she did you know lots of her well mm. she did down by the water she did you know lots of her best her better known numbers but she also got to do her new stuff as well and she she did some sort of stuff with this desire and certainly more new album chaps and i think that is the way to do it. I've complained previously about bands playing new albums in their entirety mm. at festivals, and and that's not a good idea. And I think if people have paid to see you rather than seeing you at a festival, you can be a bit more unusual because people have paid to see you because they are a mm. fan of your band. And I don't think it's unreasonable yes. to expect people that have paid to see you in concert to have, particularly if you're a more alternative band, if like the National, the National are kind of known as an albums band, I would say, rather than a singles band. Right. And I think that if if you are that sort of band, then it's not unreasonable to expect fans to wear your whole back catalogue. But I do think if you're only going to do rarities and you're or you're only going to do hits and you have that kind of fan base, you should be telling people in advance what your plan is, really. So I suppose it's getting that balance, isn't it? Otherwise, yes. it could be really self-indulgent. I was thinking, imagine going to see Paul McCartney and he says, I'm not going to play any Beatles songs. Um, we're going to play Egypt Station and Kisses on the Bottom and <laughs> Fall instead. <laughs> you know? He just wouldn't then, do that. No, he wouldn't. Absolutely not. And, and of course, by all means, do play one or two things from Egypt Station. And there are some people, including me, that will probably be quite pleased to hear those. But, you know, do Hey Jude as well. That's probably yes. the best balance, isn't it? And I think, it, but it's interesting. But then having said that, you know, there might be some people that really enjoyed that reality show. If you're a big yeah, fan of the National, you know, if I went to see PJ Harvey and Shirley did B-Sides, I'd still have a great time. Well, I'd still enjoy hearing them. But it's just it's just telling people there are different flavours of fan, aren't there? There are different levels of fans. Like, you know, if you, if you went to see Blur, you know, there are some people, it's perfectly fine to be a fan of Blur because you've got their greatest hits, you know, and and you want to see them for that. And and the, the, the great live bands are the ones that cater for all audiences, I suppose, really. And and that was that's what worked about PJ Harvey. And that's what works about bands that are able to do that, I think. 
one band who won't, it seems, have to face that dilemma is Fleetwood Mac. Mm. As Stevie Nicks is on a massive solo tour at the moment. Includes mm. some dates, um, doubles up with Billy Joel. I think they mm. sort of switch headlining roles. And in an interview with um, Vulture a couple of days ago, Stevie Nicks said, when... Christine McVie died. I figured we really can't go further with this. There's no reason to. Mm. So obviously it's easy to empathise and to see Stevie Nicks' point. Um, and of course, breaking um, with Lindsay Buckingham hasn't helped keep. Yeah, so I think that's, that was the first blow, I think, really. Yeah, but potentially no more Fleetwood Mac, uh, Jules. Do you know what? Actually, we might disagree on this, but I admire Stevie Nicks for doing this because I think we talked the other week about when and we've talked about this a couple of times, I think, about when a band still bands, when do bands stop being that Mm. band? Is it when you lose the singer? Is it when you lose the songwriter? Is it when you lose the drummer? If there are two versions of the same band, like there were with UB40, like there was with Bucks Fizz, which one is the real band? Um, The recent uh, travails of um, the three original Sugar Babes who now finally have the rights back to the Sugar Babes name. Um, You know, this sort of Mm. thing. And actually, I really admire, you could argue that Fleetwood Mac without well of course originally Fleetwood Mac were of course Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac so they've always been through iterations but you could argue really once Lindsay Buckingham went to what extent were they Fleetwood Mac anyway the fact they had to replace him with about three people including bizarrely Neil Finn from Crowded House which I always saw as an odd swap as much as I like Neil Finn and Crowded House but anyway I really admire Stevie Nicks just saying well look Chrissy McVie was a big part of this band. You know, she was a big writer in this band. She was a big creative force and she's gone and it does and it doesn't feel the same. And I just think, you know, how unusually respectful of someone in a rock band to say, you know, rather than plowing on when someone's died. Let's just stop this now. And I think it goes to show as well. And we talked that we do pay tribute to Chrissy McBee when when uh, when when she passed away and how she seemed like a really genuinely nice person. And I just I think that is that is decent of Stevie Nicks. And I just think, you know, if only more people were that honest and just gone, look, do you know what? One of our main people that everybody liked that was really good and wrote loads of good songs isn't here anymore. To what extent do we keep flogging this? I suspect most of them have probably made enough money by now. I suspect Stevie Nicks almost certainly has. And, you know, given that Lindsay Buckingham's gone as well, you know, if you haven't got Buckingham and you haven't got McVie, you know, you are Stevie Nicks and Mick Fleetwood, the drummer, aren't you? And then various other people. And if Stevie Nicks is doing a solo tour, and I suspect Mick Fleetwood has made plenty of money, right time to stop, I think. I think it was a right to soon. It must be, though, uh, broadly, broadening it out, a difficult decision when a band member dies. The Rolling Stones have continued without Charlie Watts. And The Who have carried on with just Townsend and Daughtry, two obviously died. Yes. I I do wonder, I take your point, I do wonder what Mick Fleetwood and John McVie think. They've played together for 56 years, and I wonder if they're happy to slip into retirement. Now, I'm sure they've got the money, but, mm. you know, so I, I suppose, you know, well, it's never say never, isn't it? We know the Eagles weren't going to reform until hell throws over, and then, mm. um, you know, that... that um, um, gap lasted for their gap year lasted 14 years until <laughs> 1994, and they're still playing live now. So, as I say, yeah, you you you, you never know. But I do I take point in terms of Fleetwood Mac, yes, it's with just Stevie Nicks, um, Mick Fleetwood, and John McVie. 
Just and Mick Fleetwood and Fleetwood, uh, Mick Fleetwood had already said in February that he thought it was probably yeah. the end of them anyway, really. He said we'd said that before. And I love the, the quote that they've actually got in this article from Chrissy McVie herself um, when she said it could be their band's last. And she said the 2018 is supposed to be a farewell tour, but you take farewell tours one at a time. Somehow <laughs> we've always come together, the unit. And she, um, of course, she didn't tour for years herself. She stopped touring with them well, in 1998. Quite. Because yeah. she was afraid of flying, but she rejoined in 2013. And, um, yeah, and yeah, like you say, you know, you get to a certain point. And uh, Stevie Nicks, lovely quote herself. She said, um, when she talks about the 2018 tour, she said, we had a really great time and it was a huge tour. That was there in the realm of possibility. But when Christine died, I felt like you can't replace her. You just can't. Without her, what is it? And you do think, yeah, there are certain people who... You know, personally, I think the Rolling Stones aren't quite the same without Charlie Watts, but that is their their you know yeah. choice to continue, isn't it? But um, yeah, a farewell Fleetwood Mac. I think that's the right the right decision to make. We have more to come. Um, a reminder that music doesn't change the world or win elections. <laughs> and, and some good news for King Charles. Nicholas Witchell is retiring. That's next, right after Jason Isbell. Us back when we were close Before we had somebody picking out our clothes But you always dressed in your Sunday best Even when we didn't have nowhere to go I got a picture of us playing in a bar And your shirt cost more than your guitar But you played so
about his friend and fellow musician Justin Towns Earl and it comes mm. from his magnificent new album which has been a hit all around the world this summer um, it's from the album Weather Vanes Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit and When We Were Close that's excellent I really enjoyed that in Bob Dylan's early days in the spotlight, he was persistently asked by rather straight-laced interviewers Mm. um, wanting to put him into an easy-to-understand category, asked what he was protesting about and what he wanted to change. And this was the early 1960s when folk musicians were often called protest singers. And to be, you know, many were, to be fair, many were calling for a new world and new ways after, um, I suppose, post-war austerity. But then we had calls for revolution in the late 60s in Mm. the face of the war in Vietnam and the horror of Kent State. I mean, and that showed that nothing was going to change. And so on through punk and raves. It's all noisy and sounds impressive to impressionable people at the time. But music changes nothing and certainly doesn't win elections. There was an interesting piece in The Telegraph last week reflecting Mm. back on another monumental waste of time and energy, Red Wedge, which set out in the 80s with do-gooders like Billy Bragg to influence the next election in favour of the Labour Party. And Mrs Thatcher and the Conservative Party won with a majority of 102 seats. So music Mm. is music, Jules. It doesn't change anything. Well, it's it depends how you wish music to change things. I think it can I, I think it can influence people, but whether or not it influences people in a direct way, rather than just a sort of nebulous way, I'm not sure. The Red Wedge thing, I mean, I saw sort of echoes. Isn't it f- funny how um, history has a habit of um, sort of sounding sounding the same at times? Um, and and I of course remember. My recently, do you remember the disaster that was Labour Live for uh, for Jeremy oh, Corbyn in 2018? Yes. That was meant to be capitalising on his Glastonbury moment in 2017. After was that when you went to see him in Warrior Square? Was no, that... this was a year later. So oh, I okay, saw I Corbyn just after the 2017 and and by the way i went just because i thought i should go and i thought it would be interesting and it very much was and i had previously lived in warrior square so actually it was a very surreal experience standing in this large crowd um near where i used to live but no i saw him just after the near miss of the election in 2017 and that was the sort of seen as the peak of his popularity that month he went to glastonbury and spoke on the main stage and the salt the crowd sang to seven nation army that thing labor live was a year later in 2018 and um, a lot of money had been put into it I seem to remember like a lot of money a lot of money and um, and unfortunately it ended up um, 
it ended up um, drawing. The world had moved on a year later, it would seem. Um, uh, There was a site in Tottenham that had a capacity of 20,000. Unfortunately, only 4,000 people turned up. I got offered a ticket by so many different organisations in the week leading up to it. Got to the point where they were, I was almost at the point where I thought, well, if you pay me to go, then yes, I will. And it wasn't that far off, Sirti. The Workers Beer Company, who were involved in Red Wedge, who who have big concessions at Glastonbury. Lots of my friends have actually been to Glastonbury because you can volunteer for Workers Beer and do shifts. And because it is a sort of a, you know, socialist organisation and, and, you know, an ethical organisation, actually, it's one of the best people to work for at Glaston because you don't have to do endless shifts you can actually get a pretty good deal out of it but they refused to get involved in Labour Live because they wouldn't they feared they wouldn't recoup their costs and they were probably right not to do so um someone was talking about where um, in this article about where um Labour was in 1985. They said it was when Red Wedge was happening. It was terribly disorganised and near bankrupt. They were living on overdraft. Mm. There were times when the staff didn't get paid for a day or two because bank payments didn't go through. So Red Wedge, Red Wedge were trying to sort of, um, I mean, it was admirable in a way, really. And I admire musicians, like the people involved, that were willing to go out there and do it rather than just, you know, giving sort of haughty interviews to the press and, and you know, sort of saying, banging on about, you know, writing song lyrics about things, but sort of not, you know, sitting in your mansion writing lyrics. And, and it's to the great credit of people like Billy Bragg and Paul Weller. They did actually attempt to do something. I think I admire them for that. Um it was described as a collaboration of artists who opposed Margaret Thatcher. I mean, it's not exactly Live Aid, is it? But, um, <laughs> but you know, I'm quite, quite, um, quite. You know, what also the the, the issue was. Um, the issue was was that they actually Red Wedge weren't in, in ter- terribly enamoured of their own side to begin with. Really, there were difficult there were there were difficulties over the um then you know they felt that Kinnock hadn't done enough to support the miners and all that kind of stuff. I don't know if music changes the world or not, but um certainly certainly charity benefits and and politics and music aren't always a very good mix. We found out. No, I just think Billy Bragg sitting in his um, cliffside mansion in Dorset imagining there's no heaven is never, ever going to convince a reform UK or conservative voter Mm. to change to Labour. So stop bothering. I mean, I think it's just indulgence. Music doesn't spark revolutions. And I think you I don't know whether you'll agree with this or not. Let's see. But I feel that Mm. generally political speeches and rallies and so on, and I'm tying this into the whole music. They're almost worthless in that they Mm. appeal to the people who are going to vote for your party anyway. Um, So the influence um, it's going to only influence on your existing core of voters, and, yes. and so it is in music as well with your Billy Braggs and. Yes, I think I suspect that's probably right, isn't it? Really, particularly if you're going to. I think in a way, perhaps sometimes musicians. And and I'm going to completely go against the argument I've just made. Actually, you maybe think sort of differently about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with you, by the way, that rallies. Yeah. Rallies are rallies are good to. I mean, as a political activist and a political organizer at, mm. at, at points in my life, I actually think rallies are good for. We used to use them, and particularly celebrity visitors, we used to use them to draw people in. So, like, if we had a venue somewhere to draw mm. people in, 
have the person come in and do their turn for 15 minutes and then shove a clipboard in everyone's hand, put them into groups and send them out afterwards. We would use them to galvanise activists to yeah, go out and, yeah. and be sort of motivational. Yes, absolutely. And, and to sort of fire people up and get people passionate and mm. wanting to get more involved rather than necessarily sort of changing the minds of people that didn't already agree. I completely agree with that. However, you say about, um, you know, um, we were just talked about whether or not music can change the world. No, it can't. And I don't think, or, or rather, I think that it's less likely to if you write, you know, a protest anthem or something like that, and that you make that the whole core of your being like Billy Bragg. However, I do think sometimes that certain figures that are not, political can have impact by making not necessarily party political statements but political statements but if someone like ed sheeran was to give a political interview or a large figure with a large fan base was to give a political interview be interesting to see if that made a difference if anyone heard cheering when passing windsor castle this week it was probably the king and prince william reacting to the news <laughs> that the bbc's royal correspondent nicholas witchell has announced his forthcoming retirement in 2024 joined the bbc as a trainee in 1976 and he's been covering the royal family since 1998 now i was standing shoulder to shoulder with prince charles who described witchell as so awful i can't bear that man um because <laughs> as well as he often witchell that is came across is rather preening and a bit of a know-all but then, Jules, my opinion was turned on its head last year when he reported on the death of the Queen and was so kind and sensitive and captured mm. the tone that was needed so perfectly live off the cuff on BBC News. Yes, he was that good, it, actually. It made me well up. So a good note to leave on for, for Mr. Witchell. It's a shame it took him so long to get there, is yes. all I would say, because they, he did have quite a long career of annoying everybody until then. Yeah. Although he didn't seem to age for a very long time, actually. I will give him that. I saw him because he was one of the first TV news presenters that I remember, really, as a, as a, you know, as a child in the late 80s. And I saw him on something about 10 years ago and thought, well, you don't look very different to how I remember you as a four-year-old, really. He, he, he seemed to age quite well. However, I feel we should remember Nicholas Witchell for his um, rather unfortunately captured row with Richard Evans. I mean, this is genuinely one of the funniest things I've ever heard. Um, he got into a, into a spot of bother in that he was rehearsing on Five Live um, for the BBC's coverage of the VJ Day 60th anniversary oh, right. commemorations in 2005. And there were Preparations were a two-way between Nicholas Witchard and Radio 5 presenter Richard Evans. And the audio is out there. It is eight minutes of people basically bickering with each other for no real good reason that I could ascertain. It was just two colleagues that annoy each other having a row. There, was, there are hapless studio staff that attempt to intervene at various points and do not get anywhere. And there is a full transcript of this available on the Guardian website for anybody that wishes to have a look. I would recommend it. It's very good. It's um, one of those things. Um, it's it's one of those things where I, I, I my sympathy for for each person swings from thing to thing. <laughs> Basically, the tenor is is yeah. that 
Nicholas Witchard is being asked is is being asked very obvious things by by Richard Evans. He complains that Richard Evans is asking him too obvious things. And then Richard Evans says, "Well, I've got to ask you something. What should I ask?" And then Nicholas Witchard is unhelpful. So it starts with Richard Evans going, "Oh, okay, bloody bloody blah, blah, blah. Here's our royal correspondent, Nicholas Witchard, to tell us what happened today." It's a very long pause at this point, and Nicholas Witchard goes, "Sorry, I mean it's just a there's there's been a memorial service. You can't ask. I don't mean your intro will say the Prince of Wales." letter commemorating at the cenotaph what has happened at the cenotaph they sounded the last post they had a two minute silence and then richard evans goes well just tell us all that then you know to which nicholas witchell goes no i'm sorry i'm not going to at which point richard evans goes what do you want me to do and nicholas witchell goes i don't know honestly i don't and then they're trying they're just arguing over what what how it should go basically and it's just so entertaining and richard evans says at one point I'm the monkey, not the organ grinder, all right? So what do you want me to ask you? And um, it's very entertaining. And there's a best bit where Richard Evans goes, they agree that you'll ask us something. He goes, what should I ask you after that? And Nicholas Witchell says, I'm sure you'll think of something. I mean, I have to say, he comes out of this as a very unhelpful colleague, yes. I must say, obstructive. And, uh, yes, I think so. It's very, and the poor old... Um, <laughs> poor old... Um, Daniel says, uh, Richard Evans says to the hapless Daniel, who's production stuff, do you want to persevere with this, Daniel, or not? I don't understand what's going on here. Quite frankly, I'd rather be watching television. And Daniel says, neither do I. Um, <laughs> so, so, um, and then there's someone called Tracy gets pulled in as well at one point. I feel for all of these, um, all of these yes. people that are having to work with these terrible people. Do basically. you remember, George, do you remember when some of your people broke into Broadcasting House when Nicholas Witchell and uh, yes, it was the absailing lesbians. Yes. yes. And he had to sit on them to stop them getting to the <laughs> microphone. Uh, well, it was when the government was it doing was... some don't be gay kind of yes, thing. It... What, what was that clause? Was clause 28. Yeah, I was, I was, I've met one of the people that was sat on by Richard, Nicholas Witchell. She was very nice um, and very amused by the whole affair, really. She said she's been sat on by worse people, which is good to know. But um, yeah, ridiculous job, royal correspondent, isn't it? I mean, oh, absolutely. I mean, what, he, a, what a way to <laughs> go through life. What do you do? Well, I follow uh, various members. I follow the, the royal, royal family, family around. And yeah. so, I mean, he's basically a posher version of Dennis Pennis, isn't he, really? He ends up shouting <laughs> yes, he at is. distance at very various people i mean they're all a bit tedious royal correspondents yeah. aren't they uh, jenny bond she and oh, they yeah, seem to yeah. end up on i'm a celebrity as well don't they which i, I find do. very tedious camilla tomine actually who i think was well is either telegraph or the times she was i'd heard her speak before as a royal correspondent she was quite mm. interesting but um yeah it does seem to be a bit of a a bottom feeder job regardless of your views on the royal family it does seem to be rather subservient doesn't it Happy retirement, anyway, to Nicholas uh, Witchell. <laughs> Indeed. I and hope Richard that you, Evans. you find someone. Yeah, hopefully Richard Evans can find someone. He's still working. Work He's um, professor of journalism at uh, City of London University. Well, indeed. Well, that row was in 2005, so quite wow. a lot of time has passed since then. Thanks very much for listening this week. Good to have you there. Very much agree. Thanks for being along. And thanks for not being Richard Evans either. Although if you are Richard Evans, of course, well done for surviving Nicholas Witchell. Unlike Nicholas Witchell, happily not retiring in all senses, is Juliet who will be forging ahead with her radio shows.
Indeed. Smooth sailing from seven to nine on bar- on, a, on a noise box radio. I don't know why I said barricade then. I've never done smooth sailing for barricade. Anyway, a noise box radio. The radio station you were on about 15 years ago. I know, I'm right. really... T- what, what can I say? We seem to be living 15 to 20 <laughs> years in the past, talking about a row that happened in 2005 True. and now True. that. Anyway, um, yes, I'll be doing smooth sailing on noise box radio. Two hours of Yacht Rock, M-O-R, A-O-R. No rails between anybody. At least that is the plan yes. anyway from 7 to 9 p.m. And lost the word to make till 9 on Thursday evenings, which is uh, instrumentals of all and no genres. And again, nobody getting very cross. That's always the plan anyway. Who knows? People might be getting cross at the radio, but I won't hear them. So that's the big thing. <laughs> people silently shaking their fists. Yeah. Yes, people shouting at the radio yes. because I can't hear it. I so, want you know. his ride like the wind. She's exactly. not it. Not sailing. You... Yes, oh, Christopher. Lord Laverne used to say on on Twitter. I saw her say to someone on Twitter once that every so often she'd get men of a certain profile complain about songs on Six Music that she'd played, and she said, uh, and she described it in block capitals as "Not this one. You're not playing one of the ones." And I love the idea that there are certain ones that happen. Sure so yes, I I will I try to play the ones as best I can. Now, you can never go wrong with Marvin Gaye and the very underrated Tammy Terrell. Yes, indeed. R.I.P. Tammy Terrell, indeed. dying tragically at the age of 24. I know. What what would she have achieved, eh? She was, she and Mar- Marvin Gaye, possibly the best duettist ever. Everybody he duetted with was brilliant, wasn't he? He duetted with her, Wouldn't Diana Ross. Wouldn't disagree with you for a moment and, there. And yeah. Kim Weston. He just seemed yeah. to make people better, didn't he? But already brilliant people, even better. But I do feel him and Tarry, Tammy are the best pairing really for me as good as he was with the others as well and as good as they are in their own right and I just I love this song it always makes me happy and it's one of those songs where whenever I hear that lovely intro because it doesn't it doesn't start off it doesn't whack in it kind of develops very gradually and I just love the way that it kind of sprinkles a bit of fairy dust at the beginning and I always feel excited when I hear the start of this and when when the chorus kind of breaks through with the two of them singing I do genuinely feel that I could do anything so I like music like that music may not change the world politically but it does always make me feel more positive when I hear lovely records like this this is Marvin Gaye Tammy Terrell and Ain't No Mountain High Enough Listen
You've been listening to a Parish Council production. <laughs>